Um, if you don't know who I am, if you're new, my name is Matt. I'm the teaching pastor here. Uh, we're glad you're here. Here's what we do. We worship. We do that through praise, through prayer, through preaching, through the fellowship of the saints. Um, we do that weekly. We think it's really important. Uh, here's why. What can happen Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, is you can begin to become like Elijah. If you know his story, Elijah gets super depressed. He actually gets suicidal. And he's in a cave and he complains to God and he says this, I'm the only one that serves you. And God's response is, oh, come on, bud. There are 7,000 that have not bent the knee to Baal. You're not alone, bud. So we come together and part of corporate worship is, hey, you're not alone. You might feel that way in your home, maybe on the job site, maybe in your neighborhood. You might feel that in our world kind of day, like we're alone. So we come together and we're reminded, no way. We're connected to this thing that Jesus started 2000 years ago. And one day it will triumph. One day this kingdom wins. That's what we're reminded of. So it's really important. So we welcome you. Um, we study the Bible right now. We're in the book of Genesis. So you can open your Bible to Genesis chapter six. Verse one. One of the craziest chapters in the Old Testament. Genesis 6, one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And Yahweh said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Jesus, thank you for the praise that we've been able to utter. Thank you for the prayers that have had an audience before your throne. And now, Lord, we thank you for your word that is a light, it's a lamp to direct us and inform us and instruct us, to enlighten us. And so may we be enlightened this day to the way things really are and the way you truly are. So give us wisdom 
And I pray this in your name, amen. So, crazy chapter. Let me introduce it like this. Is there somebody in your family that's super embarrassing to you? Maybe growing up, it was your mom or your dad. Maybe right now it's an uncle that, man, he always drinks a little bit too much wine and he starts in these jokes and you're just like, oh no. Maybe it's an aunt that keeps telling your wife she should try Weight Watchers. You wanna strangle her. Maybe it's cousins with their innuendos. Maybe it's a grandpa that's always talking about conspiracies, 9-11, right? GMOs, vaccinations, just nonstop. Keeps talking about Obama. You're like, listen, the guy's gone now. Can you please give Obama a break? I mean, come on, get a new subject, right? So, so you have this person in your family. Every family has one. Do you know that? If you're sitting there saying, not my family, yeah, it's you, stop, okay? So everyone has one, and, and you know that when you're gonna introduce a new friend or bring uh, maybe another couple to uh, a reunion or to a holiday at your house, you know that they're there, and, and there's always this kind of concern. Maybe you're introducing your fiance. Maybe it's your kids for the first time. So you know that this person is like that. What do you do in that situation? Don't you try to hide them a little bit? Like, kind of, you're always running a little bit of interference. You're trying to kind of keep them away. If they start talking about vaccinations, you're like, oh yeah, our vacation was awesome. Let's go now, get away from him. Like, you're just always on alert and you're trying to like put the awkward uncle over in the corner and like, Ugh. what if the embarrassing person though isn't a family member? What if the embarrassing person to you is God? What if it's the actions that he takes in Genesis chapter six, when he floods the world? So here's what I think happens with this story. It's either denied, there's lots of people that deny it. It was only a local flood, just took place like in this little place. And, all right, so they deny it or much more common in America, Christianity is we domesticate this story. We take this flood story and we make it super safe we tame it. We water down the flood. That's so brilliant. You need to write that down for later. Right? Don't we do that a little bit? So we take this story and then you go visit somebody with a newborn baby and over the crib, they have a mobile that's Noah's Ark, right? It's always cute and fluffy and it has like an elephant there and a giraffe with its head sticking through a window and Noah's there smiling and it's blue skies and beautiful water, right? Is that really what happened here? Now, a true picture of the flood would be floating masses of dead carcasses of people and animals, flies and gnats and ravens landing on them and picking the flesh off of them. That's the true picture. No one's painting that on the nursery of their kid's room, right? No way. I have threatened that if we get a building, I'm putting that in the nursery. Like no mom's ever going to check in their kid here. And that's probably why you're not going to ever have a building, Matt, because you're going to do stuff like that. So we, we, we've domesticated this story. We've tried to make it like, oh, that's kind of awkward. Uh, God's wrath, uh, God's judgment. 
it's, it's hard for us to figure it out. So we want to kind of put it in the corner and really make it safe. That's what we do. I think personally, the reason why we do that as 21st century American Christians, here's why. We're naive. We are kings and queens that now reside in Camelot. That we have a worldview that's tainted by a very small sliver of history. Okay, let me explain. I'll explain it like this. Um, I've noticed in America, in this past season, there seems to be a slight uptick in people's anger. Have you noticed that? Like there's a lot more kind of anger in our nation. And it's coming from the right. It's coming from the left. It's coming from the center. It's like everywhere, people just seem really angry. So on the right, when you have conversations with people on the right, that the, the anger is usually like this. It's whenever you say Trump didn't do something perfectly, right? Like, I don't know, I think that might be a mistake. What? It's as if now there's this idea that Trump goes to Mar-a-Lago and he goes into his room and God appears to him, tells him exactly what he should do and he fails not to obey it 100%. And then to say anything that Trump is doing right now is not right or good, it's like almost saying that you don't believe in the Bible. People are like, heresy, Trump is right. Listen to him, he'll tell you he's right. Come on. <laughs> to those people like, listen, bud, Trump is not Jesus. You need to write that on a piece of paper and put it on your TV. Trump is not Jesus. Right? Just to keep that in mind, he's not perfect. If he is, I want to see him walk on water, all right? When he does that, okay. So that's that, the, the, the right side. But then the left, the left is like, oh no, Western civilization is crumbling. I'm like, really? 500 years of history is just going to be gone like right now? Like you have much more faith in the power of Trump than I do. Like you're, you're gonna say this one dude is gonna totally take out this world? I mean, really? I mean, it's crazy to me. The truth is this. We are doing right now, financially, better than we were doing in the ripping 80s under Reagan, right now, today. So look at the price of milk, look at the price of eggs compared to today versus 40 years ago. They're much, much cheaper today, right? Homeless people have iPhones. That's amazing. Like they're holding a wheel work for a food sign, Snapchatting themselves. Out for a woman. You're like, man, that's pretty cool, dude. You got an iPhone. You're on the side of the road. Wow. And they say, well, that's all Trump. Really? Six weeks he's able to do that? I don't think so. This thing's going back a little bit before that. So, so, so we, we have this idea and, and um, um, it's all this anger, I think, partially because we're in Camelot. We have it super, super good. I read this economist who just looked at like world economies over history. And he said, right now, the average American lives better than 98% of the people alive or who, has, who have ever lived in history. We are the 2%. Average American, we are the 2%. We have it super, super good. Kings of old would dream to live like us air conditioning, automobiles, clothing, like soft clothing. You know how rare soft clothing was just 100 years ago? It was super rare. Now everyone has soft clothing. Right? Your smartphone, your smartphone is a million times more powerful than the computers that put people on the moon. And you've got it in your pocket. 
At least I hope it's in your pocket. Right? We live in Camelot. We have it so good. And because of this, we start to argue over about these secondary issues almost because we don't have issues. Because we are really nationally, holistically, as a group, we have no idea how bad human depravity can be. We've never experienced a Rwanda as a culture. We've never seen a million people hacked to death with machetes like happened to Rwanda. We're clueless about that. We've never had the, the Slobodan Milosevic's that have done genocide to our neighborhoods, systematically killing certain kind of people. We've never had that. We've never had a Mao or a Stalin. We've never experienced apartheid where, where people were segregated over there and made into third-class citizens. We've never had any of that. You know, holistically, nationally, we've never had any of those things. And so we're very naive to how bad things actually can be. So it's almost like now we have to invent something to be angry about, a cause. So we can invent new things. We're the lone superpower. We've never been occupied, us, us nationally, we've never been occupied by another country that has forced us, subjugated us under their thumb. Our government functions. You may not like the government, our government is not perfect, but you know what? By and large, it functions. Go to a third world country and try to get something done. And you'll be very thankful for the functioning system that we have in place right now, right? So because of this kind of naivety, we read about God doing what he does and we kind of revolt. We're like, God did what? Well, then I'm out. I can't believe in a God that would do that. That's embarrassing. Put him in a corner. There's a guy I read a lot on things like this. His name is Miroslav Volf. He's a Princeton professor, professes Jesus, Christian, and he lived through the ethnic cleansings that happened under Slobodan Milosevic. He knows firsthand, talking to people, watching entire families get butchered. He knows. This is what he says about that. He says, only a God that does not judge could be thought up, only that kind of God that does not judge could be thought up in the quiet comforts of an American suburban home. The only place you can imagine a God that never judges, never acts this way, is when you live in the Camelot of America today. That would never work in Pol Pot's Cambodia. That would never fly under the Third Reich, a God who never judges. So I think we read Genesis in that kind of a mentality that's naive to real evil wickedness. So I wanna show you really quickly why God has to act this way. I'll give you three quick reasons. Why does God have to judge in this radical way? Look at number one, it's verses one and two. There's sexual problems. Genesis 6, one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. A bizarre text. We'll talk a lot about this on Wednesday. The sons of God, it's Benai Ah Elohim. The Benai Ah Elohim have relations with the daughters of man, right? Weird. 
So what are they? Ah, there's all kinds of ideas. We'll explore some of those this Wednesday. But here's what I want you to notice. Chapter six is actually a continuation of the story. So flip back really quick with me to chapter four. Chapter five is actually a parenthesis. It's the genealogies. Adam had this guy, that it's a, it's a parenthesis. The story actually ends chapter four and picks right up in chapter six and it's telling us what's happening. So listen to this. Verse 23, chapter four. This guy named Lamech. Lamech is the first polygamist. He's the first guy that says, I'm gonna have multiple wives. So listen to what he says now. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech. Now, just on the surface for a moment, who talks to their wife like this? You know, Charity, hear my voice. You wife of Matt, hear what I say. <laughs> What's she gonna say? Dude, get out of my house now. <laughs> get away from me, you freak. Right, so he just has this pompous kind of arrogance. So he's now looking at women as property to acquire. And then he's looking at everybody else as competitors. If you touch me, I will kill you. If you wanna get revenge on me, 77 fold revenge on your head, right? That's the, the roots that now lead us into chapter six. So whoever these beings are, some people say it's the Seth line. Some people say it's these mighty kind of king warriors. Some people say it's fallen angels. Some people say it's demonically invaded individuals. And we'll talk about those on Wednesday. Whoever these beings are, they're building on the line of Lamech. They're building on this idea that now they're collecting for themselves these giant harems of women. It took any woman they choose. If you're good looking, I'm just grabbing you. I personally believe the reason why there are no daughters with Noah on the ark is because his daughters have been grabbed by these men or these beings or whatever they were. He personally had experienced the evil of what these guys were doing, these creatures. So men, imagine for one second, your daughter is kidnapped and brought into an, a harem of a warlord for, Ira, for ISIS. How would you feel about that? Would you wanna sing Kumbaya, my love? Or would you wanna send in Chad Hansen? I'm gonna want action. I want somebody to take care of this, all right? So, so you have this right here. There's this sexual thing going on where, where men now or these beings or demonically inspired kings or fallen angels are now collecting women in these harems. That's a massive problem. Number two problem. Verse five, it's not just sexual, it's total. Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a total wicked society. So we have these movies sometimes that maybe they picture it a little bit. Mad Max or Book of Eli, like these apocalyptic movies where it's just, society is 
so crumbled and crushed that it's just a really, really wicked place. That's what it was in the flood. Then thirdly, it was homicidal. Look at verse 11, chapter six. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled, filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. It's just violence. Like Lamech, 77-fold vengeance. You touch me, I kill you. You try to get back at me, I'm gonna kill 77 of your crew. Like it's that idea. There is some, sometimes we get little glimpses of that today, the, the real depravity of man. So there's this tribe, you can Google them if you want. Uh, it's, a, it's a disturbing read, but they're called the Cuckoo, Cuckoo tribe. Anybody heard of them? Okay, they're cuckoos. Like they're considered by anthropologists to be one of the most violent tribes ever encountered. And there's this story that I, well, I read about them a couple of years ago. And there's this story about this guy that went over there and they brought in this guy that had murdered somebody. They brought him in. It's in Papua New Guinea. They bring him in and they're trying to ask him like, why'd you murder this guy? And he said, did you know him? No, he's a complete stranger to me. I met him on the path and I killed him. Well, why'd you do that? He goes, well, I, I was walking by him on this path and he walked by me. And as he walked by me, I thought to myself, he may kill me someday. So I turned around and I beat him to death with my club. Okay, that happened all the time in that tribe. It was such broken, such wickedness, kind of like this time here, just homicidal wickedness, evil continually. It's almost like, I think, if you look at Auschwitz in World War II, it's the center of the, the gassing and the killing of 10 million people, 6 million Jews. And so what happened when it was starting to be kind of discovered, like this is what they're doing in Auschwitz, the world Jewish Congress, you can look it up, in the summer and fall of 1944, a year before the war is over, they kept pleading with the allies, just go in there and bomb the place. And the allies are like, wait, wait, we're gonna kill a bunch of Jews there. It does not matter. You have to put a stop to that killing place. It's that corrupt. It's that broken. Bomb it. It's, it's, society had become like that. And so God now says, I have to take care of it. So he kills them all? No, he puts a stop to it. They were already killing each other. God puts a stop to it and changes it. So what we've done with this story now, because of our kind of 21st century mentality, the quiet suburban lives we live, the Camelot we're in, we look at it and we're like, ah, mm, I don't like that. But in reality, in reality, it was really broken. Human depravity had gotten to such a low level. This is what God has to do. We're naive. And here's what we have to know. Secondly, I think you have to know this. You have to know that God is the capital J judge. If you know God is the capital J judge, it's very comforting. Here's what I mean by that. I'll explain it with a guy that I like. He's an interesting read. His name is Nietzsche. Nietzsche says this. He says, if you, if we as a society, if we do not believe in a God who judges, if we do not believe in a God for atheists, or we don't believe in a God who judges. He says this, and I think it's fascinating. Moral outrage is just a power play. Let me try to explain that. He says, if you don't believe in a God who's going to judge or a God period who has standards, 
then when somebody does something you don't like and you say, hey, that's not fair, why should you do that? You're just trying to control their behavior by your moral outrage, it's just a power play. And if you're strong enough and do not believe in a God, then you just go make it right on your own. But you're too weak, you can't make it right. So you use moral outrage as your power play to then say, stop it, I don't like how you act. If you're saying that confuses me, let me explain it a little bit more. So right now, at my house, we have seven kids, three to 16 years of age. And for this past season, these kids have played a ton of indoor soccer in our living room. Do you know why? Because the rains came. And they came. And they came. And it's raining outside right now. Pray that the rain stops before all the windows in my house are busted. All right? So they've been playing a lot of indoor soccer. So let's just say we've got the young crew, the three to nine crew, and they're playing soccer inside. And one of the older crew comes through and grabs the ball. What does a younger crew say to the older person? That's not fair, right? That's not fair. Give us our ball back. Moral outrage. We don't like what you've done right now, but we realize we're too small to do anything about it. So moral outrage. Flip the script. The older crew's playing soccer. They're doing their thing. One of the little runts get out, grabs the ball. What does the older crew say? That's not fair. Give us our ball back. No. What does the older crew do? Give me the ball. If they say no, Walker Road, UFC 2017. Someone's getting pile drive. Right? That's Nietzsche. If you understood that right there, you have a doctrine in philosophy, okay? That's what he's saying. Moral outrage is a power play because you're not strong enough to take what you want. All right, let's take that one step further for our story, all right? So the young are playing soccer. An old comes through, grabs the ball. The young say, that's not fair, give us our ball back. And the older just says, too bad, you little runt. What do the little guys do to get justice? We need our ball back. Tell dad to give it back to us. I'm often the instigator of these problems. Right? You have to go to a higher power, somebody that is the capital J judge of the home. Okay, that's the Bible. So when you read Exodus, what you see is the people of, of Israel are there in Egypt and they have a really wicked dude over them. What do they do? Hey, dad, come down, do something. And dad hears and he acts. Right. It's only, listen to me, it's only if you believe God is the capital J judge of the earth that you will ever not be able to get vengeance. It's the only way that you break the lamic cycle of saying, well, if you hurt me, I'm gonna hurt you. It's the only way that you can truly forgive somebody is, you, if, is if you believe God is the capital J judge. It's the only way. And if you have no trouble forgiving people, then you have not been hurt somewhere that's really precious for you. The only way this thing works is when you know there is a God and he will make it right. That's the only way. We're naive because of Camelot and the Bible's trying to instruct us, wait a second, God will judge. Well, Matt, why should I let God judge? Why should I not take vengeance? Why should I not, why should I offer forgiveness? Why should I do that? The reason why I chose Genesis, there's a lot of reasons. But one of the main ones is this. God is talking to a group of slaves that have been under Pharaoh for 400 years. They get set free and they have no idea who God is. So Genesis is much more than this story. 
Genesis is trying to tell these slaves, these ex-slaves that are now set free, this is who I am, this is my character. That's why I spent a lot of time on Genesis 3 talking about how does God deal with the sinner? Because we have this cloud of knowledge I think is so wrong so often that God can't stand sinners. Wait a second, what does he do to the first two sinners? It's something so graceful and so brilliant. Chapter four on Wednesday, we looked at how God dealt with Cain, walked with him as he was sinning and actually becomes his protector in his sin. So I want you to understand God. So we get in this story of the flood, we have this incredible glimpse of God's character, right? So notice, here's why you trust God, why he can judge. Number one, number one is because he perceives. Look at verse five. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God perceives more than just actions of people, God actually sees the motivations of the heart. You and I cannot see that. You and I don't, do not know that. Have you ever thought somebody did something for bad motivations only to find out later that they really had good motivations and you judge wrongly? Your son breaks your favorite glass pitcher. What are you doing carrying that? I told you you shouldn't touch that. Well, dad, I was trying to bring you a glass of water. Oh, ever blame somebody for something that you thought they did and they did not do it? Who took my tool? Which one of you took my tool? Who's been messing with my tools? And you find it in your truck. Guilty. God has all the information. And not only that, he knows the very motivations of our heart that led to it. And so he alone is the one that can judge perfectly. He perceives, number one. Number two, he is patient. In verse three, it says, this fascinating statement, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. There's all these complications with this text. Like what what is God saying here? For his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Is that the lifespan of a man? Is it something else? Here's what we know. From the time God says this until the flood comes, is about 120 years. It takes 100 years for, Moses, for, Moses, for Noah to make the ark, but there's some time in between, about 120 years. God knows this thing is really corrupt and really bad, and yet he is patient to allow everything to work out for another 100 plus years. God is so patient. The first time God declares his very nature, he says this, Exodus 34, six and seven, I am long-suffering. Why would God wait? Well, the New Testament tells us that Noah, while he's building the ark, people are probably coming and checking it out, and it says he kept preaching righteousness. Guys, get right. Guys, get right. What would have happened if back here in Genesis 6, people had believed Noah and they had repented? What would God have done? I don't think you have to wonder. Just read the book of Jonah because the same thing happens there and there's repentance. And God says, that's perfect. That's what I wanted. Right. Okay. So God is patient. He gives people time, extra time, over time. That's why. That's why. So the New Testament, Peter puts it like this. God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Second Peter chapter three, 
verse nine. Thirdly, why do we let God judge? Because he's powerful. This whole story is telling slaves 3,500 years ago and you and me, God is the only one that can rid the world of evil while saving the righteous. This place is continually evil. Everything's evil, but Noah. So Noah and his family get saved. God is the only one that is able to rid the world of evil and to take out and save the righteous. If we're left to us, you and me, we're like school children on the playground with the weak having moral outrage and the bullies doing whatever they want. And it leads to Lord of the Flies. It leads to killing and violence and vengeance and hurt feelings and that there has to be someone, the, the, the dad of the universe that's powerful and can make it right. So God here uses the chaos of the flood to calm the chaos of society, cleanse it. And I believe that if God does not deal with flood-like situations, he's not good. If God can turn a blind eye to real wickedness and evil, he's not a good God. That if God does not judge communist regimes that trample on his kids, he's not good. That if God does not judge apartheid and slavery like that, he's not good. That if God does not judge women who have been hurt and the perpetrators of that hurt and kids who have been hurt, if he does not judge the perpetrators of those things, then God is not good. That's what I believe. And Genesis, Genesis 6 tells us this, God sees and God is patient, but God will judge. There comes a time when God will judge. And I think Revelation is the final judgment. The book of Revelation is not about uh, figuring out if we're the final generation. Revelation is to tell us God sees and God's gonna do something about it. And he will, for the final time, separate evil, crush it up, throw it in this place called Lake of Fire, and then all that are righteous will live with him for eternity. That's Revelation. And he's the only one that can ever do it. It proves he cares. And he's gonna tear down these systems that hurt his kids. Then fourthly, if you don't get any other point, get this point. Why can we trust God to judge? Because he's pained. Look down at the most fascinating verse in this text when it comes to theology. It's verse six. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. How about that? The creator and sustainer of the universe looks at what's happening with women becoming property and the violent vengeance of humans and his heart hurts. When I read this, it reminded me of uh, growing up. When I grew up, I'm 45. My generation, here's what I, what I think happened. It seemed like open season on spanking children. Anyone about my age, it didn't seem like, like you got spanked all the time. So here's what happened in my home. If I got spanked in school, and I got spanked a lot in school, can you believe that? Like I got spanked in school. <laughs> That's crazy to me. If I got spanked at school, when I got home, my mom would spank me and I didn't have a dad. So she would call an elder or the pastor of the church and they would come over and they would spank me. <laughs> we called it the trifecta. All right. 
And you did not call DHS back then because you'd call DHS and the person would come over and be like, what did he do at school? Oh, give me the belt, I'm spanking him too. <laughs> it was just a whole different time then, right? I prayed for a timeout. Please let me go in the corner and think about this. I just want to think about this. Nope, uh-uh, spanked, all right? Here's what I hated to hear. You know, Matt, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I'm like, stupid. If that's true, give me the belt because I should be hurt worse because I'm in trouble. So let me spank you then. I'll see how hard it hurts me, all right? Now keep that in mind for one second because you have God who sees, who is patient, who is powerful, but also is loving and grieved. This word grieved here, God uses it again. It's in Isaiah 54, verse six. And he uses it of a woman, a young woman, who has been abandoned by her husband. And it says that woman was grieved to her heart. Same word. A therapist will tell you this. The worst pain a person can go through is being abandoned by their spouse. More than death, because the person is still there and still alive and that pain is there. So God is saying, what I'm seeing right now with women being treated like property and this competition and violence and bitterness, it pains me. So he's not this egotistical deity that's trying to crush humans. He is a spouse who's been abandoned by those that he loves so much. That's the way to see this. He is grieved to his heart. And I am convinced before you can ever understand the terror of God, you must see the tears of God. If you don't see his tears, if you don't see his grief, if you don't comprehend how it breaks his heart, you can never, ever understand Genesis 6. And so this book, Genesis, has these like, these huge hanging questions that now for 3,500 years, nobody has been able to answer. Questions like, if God knew people were gonna get really wicked like this, if God knew Adam and Eve were gonna eat of the fruit and rebel, why did God do this? Ever asked that question? You should, because Genesis wants you to ask that question, but it never answers it. It just leaves it there. Here's why I believe. It never tells us why. I think personally, the, the, the Bible should have ended in Genesis chapter three, verse seven. That when Adam and Eve committed treason against the rightful rule of the universe, the king, that God should have just said, okay, we're done. History's over. But it doesn't. And the Bible never tells us why. But whatever reason it is, whatever reason God has, it must be brilliant. Do you know why? Because God let history go on from Genesis 3, 7. What that meant for God was this. I'm gonna allow this thing to crush me. I'm gonna allow a thorn, thorny crown to be beaten into my skull. I'm gonna allow the skin of my back to be removed. I'm gonna allow my beard to be plucked off. I'm gonna allow people to spit on me and curse me. I'm gonna go through infinite pain for this thing called the human project. So whatever reason God has, it costs him 
everything. God is the only one that can truly say, this is gonna hurt me more than it's gonna hurt you. He's the only one that can say that. And that must mean the reason God said, I'll let Genesis 3, 8 happen, must mean he has a brilliant, out of this world plan for us. Something better than you could ever imagine. Something that he allows infinite pain to hit him. The Bible says that he was slain before the foundation of the world. It was not six hours on a Friday afternoon. The Bible says this, when we get to heaven, we'll see Jesus as a lamb having just been slain. That the only thing that's broken through the renewed kingdom is the king. It cost him that much, infinite pain. Isaiah says that he was more marred than any other man in history. So whatever reason it is, it's gonna be brilliant. It's gonna be exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think. That's the answer. God's reason He can't give it to us because we can't even comprehend it. That's why history goes on. That's why we celebrate right here with the bread and the cup because it reminds us weekly that you are so valued to the king of the universe, that he gave everything to purchase you, that he has something out there that he can't even explain to us because it's bigger than you can imagine. And no matter what pain I go through, I always know this, It hurt him worse than it hurt me. And it must be worth it. It must be worth it. And so Jesus, may we trust you as our judge. May we trust you. May we allow vengeance to be yours. May we allow our hearts to be touched with the depravity of humans throughout our world the Syrias that are happening right now, may our hearts be crushed by those things because they grieve your heart. May we know, may we know that you are the righteous, patient, perceptive, powerful, loving judge of the world and you will always do what is right. And I pray for any in here who have been hurt greatly by this world, by the violence of men. I pray that they could hear from you. I know, it hurt me too. And they would trust you. I pray as we drink and as we eat, I pray that we would know how valuable we are to you. That you allowed history to move on. When treason was committed against you, when you knew that this is gonna cost me everything, infinite pain, you still let history go on because we're that valuable to you. Edgewater, I am. May we eat and drink celebration of how much you value us. And we go forth from here, powered by that good news. And I pray this in your name, amen.